Well, one of the highlights, um, certainly at the Shepherds Conference, was to be able to sing with all the men, um, the fellowship, uh, the resources, the bookstore, where I probably spent too much money. Um, but uh, the highlight, though, is sitting under the Word of God and uh, to be able to sit under the, the, the preaching of, you know, John MacArthur and Abner Chow and Bodhi and, and Steve Lawson and all these guys. It was, it was fantastic. And, you know, coming, um, coming back, um, I kind of feel like we brought some Shepherds Conference with us. And uh, you get today to hear from uh, not just a phenomenal speaker, preacher, pastor, but just a godly man. Uh, so Eric Tonis, uh, let's see, I don't even know if you remember this, but it was like early 2000s. You were speaking at an ACSI conference. And I was trying to figure out who I was going to go hear speak, and it was kind of like an any mini mighty mo thing. And I just saw your picture, and I said, oh, he probably throws a football. I'm going to go listen to that guy. You know? And uh, Eric, I just remember it real early on. I came and introduced myself to you, but I just loved your, your passion for the Word, your love for the church. I said, man, who is this guy? This guy's just amazing. And so it blessed my heart. Uh, my good buddy, Junior, that many of you are familiar with, he was at Biola and Talbot, and he's taking classes with Eric Tonis. And uh, Eric just wrapped his arm around Junior and has discipled him and mentored him. And I've seen the fruit in Junior's life as he's grown into a godly man, uh, largely in part uh, from Eric's influence. But Eric has been just a treasure. He is a pastor down at Grace E.V. Free in La Mirada. He's a professor. Um, he's written several books, uh, one of them on the jealousy of God that will just rock your world. Um, so there's all kinds of accolades that I can talk about. But just personally speaking, this man has been a tremendous blessing to me from afar. Uh, the way he loves his beautiful wife, Donna, and his four children, one of which has like a Steph Curry jumper. And so I'm excited about that. But uh, I'm thrilled that he's here to open up the word for us here at Grace Church Monterey Bay. So brother, come up and bless us with the word. Well, thank you, Dom. And thank you all for joining us this morning. I'm just so delighted to be here. It's always an honor and a privilege to open God's Word with God's people, and I'm just so grateful. The older I get for a younger generation coming up behind me who love Jesus, love His Word, and are exalting Him, and Dom is certainly representative of that, and Jess, and I just love their dear family. And to join them with their church family here this morning is a great pr privilege for me. If you'd open your Bibles, please, to 1 Peter. We're going to be looking at 1 Peter chapter 2, trying to understand who we are. Finding who we are is a major quest of human existence. We all want to know who we are, and you will never know who you are until you know your Creator. And you'll never know the way you're supposed to live your life until you know who you are and you know your creator. So I got a new laptop this week. Isn't that nice? Biola gave it to me. I didn't buy it. I teach at Biola University. I'm a pastor at Grace Evangelical Free Church. But Biola gives me a new computer every few years, and I'm thankful I got this one. But imagine if I told you that I took this laptop out to my garage the day I got it, which was Thursday, and I was doing woodworking and decided I was going to start driving nails with my laptop. And, and I said to you, you know, this is a horrible laptop. I tried to drive nails with it for about a half an hour, and I wasn't able to drive one nail. And as a matter of fact, it messed the laptop all up, and it, and it doesn't even work anymore. And then what if I told you I took the hammer out of my garage, and I went back to my study, and I tried to do email on my hammer? Kayla, what would you think of that? What would you say to me if I told you that? Probably I'm crazy, right? Or, or pretty ignorant about the purpose of a laptop, or a hammer for that matter. But unless you know what something is, you're never going to know what that thing is supposed to do. And so you'll never be able to answer the question, am I living a good life? Am I living in the right way? The only way you can even answer that question is if you know what you are or who you are. And so an understanding of your identity is absolutely essential 
for understanding life itself. I think a lot of people are seeking to live a good life without first defining who they are, what they are, and then therefore what they're intended to be and how they're intended to live. I worked construction for a long time. I worked regular construction, but I also was a commercial diver and I did underwater construction for a long time. And if you've ever worked construction of any kind, you know that setting up for a job and breaking down after the job is over sometimes can take longer than the job. And when commercial diving has all kinds of equipment, like any kind of construction, but usually even more, you have air compressors and you have hot water heaters and you have all this gear you use. And we would drive sometimes for a day and a half to get to a job site and unload everything from the truck. And then when the job was over, which sometimes would take 20 minutes when we would just do a dive and come out. And the last thing you wanted to do is load up the truck in the shop, drive it to the destination, unload it at the destination only to find that one of your pieces of equipment wasn't working. That, that was just a disaster in that environment. And so when we realized that something wasn't working, whether it was an air compressor or a jackhammer or whatever we were using or a welder, we would take a spray paint can and when we got back to the shop and unloaded it from the truck, we would put NG on that piece of equipment. Anybody know what NG stood for? Never again. Never again would be good. Yes, no good, we would say. That's what it stood for, no good. This needs to be repaired. It's not good, it's not working. And the reason it was no good was because the goodness of this thing is based on whether or not it was doing what it was designed to do. And you can never know if something is good or not and actually doing what it was designed, created to do unless you know what it is and then therefore what it was created to do. And I think we have so many people in our society who can't even answer the question, am I living a good life? Am I using all I am and all I have in a good way? We have so much confusion in our society today, so much personal confusion, so, so much relational confusion, so much ethical confusion, so much confusion about what the meaning of life is, and we will never know the meaning of life unless we know the one who created life and tells us who we are and what our lives are for. And then we can start to answer the question, is this a good life or a no good life? And that's what I want to help us to do from the Word of God this morning, to actually be able to walk out of here with a sense of whether or not we're living good lives or not. Or whether there should be a big NG on the way we're living our lives. Well, the Apostle Peter is tremendously helpful to us this morning as the Spirit inspired him to write these words to us because we find out who we are. And here's what he says. 1 Peter chapter 2 gives us some instruction for how to live. But what we'll see is how we live flows from who God is and then who he made us to be. Here's some real ethical commands he begins this chapter with. So, put away all malice. Now, now what's that so? That so is a reference to who we've been made to be holy in Christ. So, in light of what he calls you to, and in light of the enduring word of God, and in light of the good news that was preached to them, he says, live this way. So, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you've tasted that the Lord is good. So we have very practical, ethical ways to live and relate and how to think about the way we use our words 
toward one another and sometimes against one another. Don't be envious people longing for what others have instead of what God's blessed us with. Don't live seeking to tear one another down with our words. Don't live dishonestly, deceitfully, but be honest people. Let your words be true. Let your lives be true. Don't be fake and phony, hypocritical people. Live this way. But then we get a massive, important instruction about how we end up living these lives. We live the lives God calls us to ethically and practically when we know that the Lord is good. And he's good. You know, it's really important we stop and define the words we use all the time, especially when they're important words about God. One of my favorite things to do is to catch people singing the wrong lyrics to songs. Do you ever do that with your friends? I, my, I catch my wife doing this all the time. And the best thing is when they're singing really, you know, passionately, saying the completely wrong words. I just, I just love that. Um, yeah, I could give you lots of examples, but my wife's not here, so I, she won't be embarrassed. She wouldn't be embarrassed anyway. She doesn't take that kind of thing too seriously. But yeah, I've caught my wife saying all kinds of strange things like, um, you know, there's that song, Band on the Run, that was big when we were kids in the 70s. Band on the Run. Who's that, Wings, maybe? I don't know. Yeah, was that Wings? Just, yeah. You know what she was saying? Sand on the rug. And I just love catching people doing that. And now I've certainly done it as well. But, you know, whether you're saying band on the run or sand on the rug is completely irrelevant to anything important in life. But that you know the words we're using about God and what they mean is really important. So let's just take the word good. Isn't God good? When people say that to you, say yes, and then say, and what exactly do you mean by good? You'll be amazed at how you get blank stares. And we kind of know, and you'll usually get an answer like, it means not bad, right? It's about as much as you'll get out of it. But, but good means that for God, it means he always, always is the standard of goodness. And all he is and all he does is always worthy of approval. All God is and all God does is always worthy of approval. His goodness means, that in related attributes, he's perfect. He's not lacking anything you would ever want him to possess. It's related to the attribute of beauty, which means he's the sum of all desirable qualities. He's good. You will never find him wanting or lacking or needing anything that you need from him or whatever desire of him. He's good. And God's people are those who've tasted, who've experienced, not just theory, but, but experience of knowing his goodness. And then therefore knowing his dependability, knowing his goodness and knowing his faithfulness and living our lives banking on that goodness. You know, it's not enough to know that God is trustworthy. It's not enough to know he's true. You need to know he's good as well. I've really become aware of this. I, I've taught apologetics, and I studied philosophy, and I love good reasons. And we need to help people understand the truthfulness of the Christian faith. But you know we equally need to help people understand the goodness of God. Not just that he's true. I think there are some people, even Christians, who believe God's true but don't quite believe he's good. And I wonder... If the goodness of God is what Satan challenges in the garden, even more than the truthfulness of God. Doesn't he get them to believe that, that God may be true, he may be powerful as the creator, but he really isn't good. Oh, so you can't eat of any of the trees in the garden, huh, Eve? Satan says, and she calls him on it and says, no, we can actually eat of every tree in the garden except for one. And Satan says, ah, I knew it. I knew he's holding out on you. I knew his goodness wasn't trustworthy. 
You better fend for yourself. You better go make it work for yourself. Take matters into your own hands. Don't depend on the goodness of God. Depend on the goodness of yourself. You know what you need more than he does, and you're willing to provide it yourself, so you go get it. That's what we've been doing ever since. And so the goodness of God is something we need to know. And we need to taste and see that the Lord is good. And knowing God in that way means trusting him in increasing measure and taking him at his word and believing his truthfulness, but also his goodness. And then stepping out, trusting that goodness and seeing the proving of it over and over again. Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him, how I've proved him. Or and or the old hymn goes. I've proved him. I've stepped out, not just trusting that he's powerful, but that he's good. Do you believe God's good? Unless you do, you'll never give your life to him and trust him with your daily life as you were created to do. We've tasted and seen and the Lord is good, so we don't need to take matters into our own hands and be deceitful people or hypocritical people or manage things to the point where we don't trust God with our reputations, with our identity, with our purpose, with our future. And now we move in verse 4 to a description of who Christ is. God revealed in the Son beholding the glory of God in the face of Christ. We see the Son, and we will never know who we are until we know who God is in Christ. And here's a beautiful description of Jesus. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, a chosen and precious cornerstone. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame, So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become a cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Jesus is the cornerstone. And so we need to know the person of Christ. If we're ever going to understand who we are, we need to understand who Jesus is. Before we can understand our identity, we need to know the person of Jesus Christ. And we come to him. And the first thing we need to realize is the person of Christ is precious. I love that word precious. it's, It's not overused, you know, like awesome. Awesome is one of those words that just gets used so much about so many things it doesn't really have much meaning anymore. You know, God's awesome, pizza's awesome, my girlfriend's awesome. I mean, pizza's good and all, but it's never made me go, <gasps> right, and like gasp with awe. But, but precious is a beautiful description of, of God and that we've tasted and seen that he's good and found him to be precious to us. It's unfortunate sometimes it it gets used to describe cute little things. Isn't that precious? But this means something incredibly dear to you, something you, you treasure and find precious is who Jesus is. He is precious. And what's important for us to realize is Jesus is the most precious object you'll ever find to delight in. And what's so important here is that this says that Jesus is precious. He's the precious cornerstone, which means he is the one upon the whole structure of our lives is built. He's the one who gives the foundation to the church, the people of God. He's the one who not just gives the foundation, but as the cornerstone does, also the direction, the, the, the dimensions of the building is structured on the foundation of the cornerstone, but the dimensions it provides as well. His preciousness gives our lives solidity and structure 
a foundation and a direction and dimensions for our lives. Jesus is the most precious object your eyes will ever see. And know that God delights in Christ. He's rejected by men, it says, but he's precious in God's sight, which is the only ultimate sight that matters. You know, we live in a democracy, which I love. But if you live in a democracy, you can actually start to think that truth is determined by voting, by the majority, by popular opinion. And there have been many times in human history where the minority were right and the majority were terribly wrong. You know, I, I hear people say, oh, you Christians, you're on the wrong side of history. You Christians, don't you realize that, that the entire culture is moving in this direction and you're moving in the other direction? You're swimming against the tide. You're, you're trying to fight an avalanche of cultural perception about what's true and right and good. Don't you know you better get on the right direction which is on the tide of where things are heading? And throughout the history of the church we've seen and in the scriptures we see that God's people are often called to swim against the current. To be distinct, to be different, to know that's part of the deal when you follow God in a fallen world. In my lifetime, I feel like so much of the church, at least in the United States, has been so deeply needing to be popular and liked and perceived as cool, kind of like junior hires. And I so want my kids, I, I picked my son up at school the other day, and we're walking in front of his school as it's letting out. I parked in a lousy place. It, ended, it meant I had, we had to walk right in front of the school where everybody's getting out, and Sam just said, Dad, this is so embarrassing. I said, what? I'm walking with my dad in front of school, and I thought, Maybe they're thinking, wow, Sam has a cool dad. Is that possible? No, no, is that not possible? This is just totally embarrassing. I can't believe I'm doing this to my son, making him walk with me in front of at school with all his friends. And, and we can feel that we can be so self-conscious and we can be so concerned about how people are perceiving us and wanting to be perceived as the cool ones. And we need to get our identity, not from popular opinion, not from cultural tides that just come and go, fashion and trend, but from what the enduring word of God tells us is good. That needs to root our lives, and then we can have a humble confidence in who God's called us to be and be the kind of salt and light and not just the chameleons who conform to the latest things. And so we need to say God's perspective is what matters. See, that's what it says. Who is Jesus? He's the one who's precious in the sight of God. In the sight of God, he's chosen. He's precious. And he's the cornerstone. That's who Jesus is. He's precious. The Bible says let, that God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Where? In the face of Christ. If you want to know the greatest goodness you could ever behold, it's the face of Jesus. As you get to know Jesus, you'll see the greatest goodness and beauty and truth you'll ever find. He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through me. That's who Jesus is. You know, there's been a disturbing process that social media has highlighted of, of often prominent and well-known Christians saying, I'm not a Christian anymore, or at least not the way the Bible says. And they, they usually say, because I just can't stand some of the ethical teachings of the Bible. I, I can't imagine that, that something like hell could ever exist. Or they have these problems. I, the church has hurt me, and there are a bunch of hypocrites in the church, and I can't be a Christian anymore. Do you know what I never have heard one of them say? I just don't find Jesus beautiful anymore. 
I just don't find him as glorious as I once did. I look in the face of Jesus and I don't see truth. I don't see goodness anymore. I never have heard them say that. And it makes me think, why were you a Christian in the first place? Was it the heart of your Christian faith? Was it the beauty and glory and goodness and majesty of Jesus? Or was it all this other stuff that your faith was really based on? And so our lives are about Christ, knowing him, enjoying him, finding him good and precious as God does. Jesus is precious. And and we see that he's loved by the Father. The Father says, you're my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased at Jesus' baptism and at his transfiguration. When God says he's well pleased in his son, we need to find pleasure in the son. He is the one we depend upon. He's rejected by men, but precious and chosen by God. And so our identity is linked to this one who is precious and good. And since Christ is honored by God, so will all those who participate in him by faith. Listen to Charles Spurgeon. The whole history of the ancient church of Christ proves that Jesus has been the object of his people's highest veneration, that they set nothing in rivalry with him, but cheerfully and readily gave up all for Jesus Christ and rejoiced to do so. It's got to be about Jesus. Our whole lives need to be about him. What are you known for? What do you want on your gravestone? It'd be great to have devoted husband and loving father. That's a wonderful thing. It'd be great to have, you know, he, he contributed so much to his field. You know, I walk through graveyards and I, I look at what people are known for. You know, I look, I, I, there are tombstones I'll see and there's a ram's football helmet on the tombstone or a fishing pole. Oh, sports are great. Fishing's cool. Being a father and a husband is good. A businessman is successful. These sorts of things are are good. They can be wonderful blessings of God. But is that the heart of your life, your hobby? One of your vocations, as important as it may be, it's got to be Christ. What are Christians known for? There are lots of things that are part of our lives, but at the heart of it all is it's so clear that we're the ones who've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. And his goodness is seen, put on display in the person of his son, Jesus. We treasure Christ. We have found him to be precious. We've tasted and seen that he is good. We are able to say with the psalmist when David writes, your steadfast love is better than life itself. And we find that love in Jesus. That's who he is. He's precious in his person. And Jesus is precious in his work, his teaching, and his miracles, his perfectly righteous life, his self-sacrificial death, his glorious resurrection, his healing power, his truthfulness. He is precious in who he is and what he has done for us. And so who do we become When we see Jesus as precious, listen to this description of who you are. If you've trusted Jesus this morning, listen to who you are. If you haven't trusted Jesus in saving faith this morning, listen to the identity you're missing out on. Verse 9. You, those who've trusted Christ in saving faith, you're a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Now, we could go on, but, but 
for the sake of time, let's just pause here with just these two verses. Did you drink that in as we read this description of who we are as God's people? We are one people in Christ. I did a 35-page paper in grad school on one Greek word, the historical development of that Greek word, and it was the Greek word en, which is in. And I thought, how am I supposed to write a 30-page paper on one preposition, in? And then I realized what a massive word this is, especially when it's put next to in Christ. If you had to summarize the entire New Testament with just two Greek words, I would choose en Christo, in Christ. That's who we are. We are those who are found in Christ. By repentance and faith, union with him comes about, so we are now in him. And we have all that is his through that union that we share and enjoy as those who are in Christ. And who, we are, who are we when we're in Christ? We're a chosen race. You know, these past few years especially, you know, I, I started my life as a boy in the, in the heat of the civil rights movement where race was a daily issue and a constant theme. And today there's been a resurgence of this, this discussion about race, and, and I care very deeply about these issues. The church needs to get it right on the issue of race and racism. We have four children, three from Taiwan, one from China, that we adopted. My wife and I are racial minorities in our own home. Love it that way. I, we're actually racial minorities in our broader extended family as well. And so what's the source of our unity then? What's the source of our identity then? Well, here we are not de-emphasizing the beauty of race as God's created it to be. But what we're realizing that when we find ourselves in Christ, we all, whatever our race created by God is we all become part of a pervasively all-important race now. I mean, a race is it's an ethnic group uh, that coming from a nation or nations, and it's a unified people that can have an identifiable identity and culture. And whatever our earthly race may be, as much as we want to celebrate and enjoy and appreciate the beautiful diversity that God's made, I, I mean, I don't want to emphasize the one race we're in to the point where I don't emphasize and appreciate the, the, the beauty of races God's made. It's like saying, you know, I, I don't look at daffodils and roses and daisies. I look at flowers. Well, it's nice to have a category called flowers and, and all the beautiful diversity of what God's made. But what will bring a unity? What will bring a perspective in the midst of that? A realization that our truest identity before God is defined by our relationship with Jesus and the fact that we now identify as the one people of God, which means that as a 57-year-old white guy raised in the Northeast, transplanted to Chicago for seven years and Southern California for the past 22 as a guy who, who has all these experiences and values, was an athlete for a big part of my life, and, and I find myself connecting with people who have those sorts of demographic things pretty easily. But what we're called to as the people of God is not connecting through demographic, hobby-based connections. You know, you're a Dodger fan, they're a Dodger fan, you can reminisce about... You know, the dad, and, and, but what is the real truth of who we are? It's the fact that we're one race of people now, that God is created in Christ. That means, as, as, as though it may be true, I connect with somebody with similar experiences. I mean, uh, Dom and Junior and I, we all played basketball, and we've actually spent some decent amount of time, especially now that my son is talking about basketball in the past couple days, and there's nothing wrong with those connections. But the fact is, you can find somebody who's, who's demographically identical with me 
And then you can find a little girl in a slum in India who loves Jesus. You you can find an, an, an old woman in Uganda. And she and I, experientially and demographically and socioeconomically, have nothing in common. But the fact is, that person, that man, who's just like I am in all those superficial ways, we're not even close to the kind of kinship and the bond and the unity that that woman in Uganda or that little girl in India has. If we all love Jesus, if we've all trusted him, that woman and that girl and I are family in a way that so infinitely surpasses all those earthly horizontal connections that it's irrelevant when it comes to what really matters most and matters for eternity. And here's the beauty of it. When you're confident in who you are in Christ, you're not threatened by earthly differences. You're not competitive with earthly differences. You're so confident with who you are, you can celebrate people different from you and cultures different from you. But when we're insecure in who we are fundamentally, we feel threatened. We feel competitive. We don't understand people who are coming from different backgrounds than we are, and so we can just have a disdain for them even. But when we're confident in who we are, it gives us the freedom to enjoy and celebrate differences and not be threatened by them. We're a chosen race of people. We're a royal priesthood. We could revel on this one for weeks. A royal priesthood. We're part of royalty, which means we have a king. And I know if you grew up in an American context, you have an anti-royal bent. I mean, how did this whole nation start? Get rid of King George, right? And that whole royal thing. And do you know the title we gave our president, the founding fathers decided to give him? Not your your highness or your eminence. You know what the title that the founding fathers decided to give the president? Mister. Mister. That was very intentional. Same as the farmer. Same as the coal miner. So we don't like royalty, but as Christians, we've got to have an understanding of royalty because it's all over the Bible. He is our king. He's the king of kings. He owns the kingdom. It's his kingdom. It's advancing. We're his subjects in his kingdom, but we're royal and we're a priesthood. This is glorious. We're a priesthood. You know, you think about the primary roles that Jesus fulfilled of prophet, priest, and king. What does a prophet do? He stands before people and declares what God says is true. What does a king do? He rules and reigns. And what does a priest do? A priest flips it around from what a prophet does and says, come on, let's go into the presence of God. That's where I'm heading. Who's going with me? And so we get to be royal priests. Imagine how this sounded when Jews who understood the priesthood is a very select few. I mean, who got to be priests? I dare say not one of us would have qualified in this room. Who gets to be priests? Well, first of all, you can't have deformities, so these jacked-up pinkies from football would have ruled me out, right? You can't have bald patches, so a whole bunch of you guys would be gone, right? Uh, you, You have to have the right clothing. You have to be male. You have to be Jewish. Who's still left is qualifying for a priest? Um, You have to be not only Jewish, but of the tribe of Levi. You have to be clean according to old covenant cleanliness codes. Not one of us in here would have qualified. The vast majority of the Israelites couldn't have been priests. But do you know in Exodus 19 what God says? He says, there's coming a day when all my people, all of them, will be priests to our God. All my people. Every one of them, every one of my people is going to have the privilege of going into the very presence of the Holy of Holies, the very presence of God before his throne, and they're able to do it according to the blood of the Lamb who is the great high priest and the King of kings. And when we're connected with him, we get to be priests to our God. And that's who we are, and that's who Peter says we are now. We are a royal priesthood. That's who we are. That's the second time he said it, right? That's who we are back in verse four, uh, verse five. We're a spiritual house, a holy priesthood. The second time he said that, we're holy. 
We're a holy priesthood, a set-apart priesthood. Do you know how the Bible describes Christians more than any other way? As hagioi, as the holy ones, the set-apart ones, the distinct ones, the ones devoted to God, the ones who are called out of a sinful fallen world to represent the King of kings and priests to our God. That's who we are now. What an awesome privilege. It's not a select few. There are two words here that in English have too often been used. I would say tragically too often had been used to describe a select few number of Christians. But the fact is all Christians, if you've truly trusted Jesus, you're a saint. And if you've truly trusted Jesus, you're a priest. It's not a select few. You know, you don't get granted sainthood one day if you've demonstrated certain... No, if you're in Christ, you're a saint, you're a holy one. You know, I think Protestants rightly emphasize the distinction between justification and sanctification, between being declared righteous before God in Christ, and then sanctification, Protestants, we will say, is a process. Justification is finished. Sanctification is an ongoing process. And I think there's truth to that, and I think it's a helpful, important distinction. But I think we can overdo it to the point where we don't realize that there is also for believers a having been made holy. It's not just a process, although it is that, unlike justification, but it is a process that begins with God making you holy with the Holy Spirit's presence indwelling in you in a permanent, enduring way. And so when you grow in holiness, there's also an element where you're growing to display who you have been made by Christ. And so let's not overdo that distinction and appreciate that we are saints. We are holy ones to our God. We've been made holy by him. That's who we are now. We're a holy nation. And this one's fascinating as well. When we think of nation, we tend, tend to think of a geopolitical entity, a place with certain laws and borders governing it. A large body of people united by a common descent and history and culture and language, a territory. But this nation, this holy nation of which we're a part, is something God creates that isn't one geopolitical identifiable territory, but it's now truly a body of people, again, united by a common descent, history, culture, and language, ways we talk, even if it's said in different earthly languages, we have the same languages we're using when we talk about these ideas, inhabiting a particular country or territory. And it's not a particular locale now, but it's God's kingdom that we represent. And the whole creation is his kingdom. That's why I love my country as an American citizen, but I want to be a world Christian. I want to be someone who loves the nations, who, who doesn't have a national identity that even comes close to my identity that's part of this nation that unites all of God's people wherever they're found on the planet. That's who we are, the people of God, belonging to him, set apart and pure because of, because of what our holy king is like. It's like the burning bush. Remember, Moses sees the burning bush, and he starts to charge toward it, and God says, Moses, wait. Stop right there. The ground you're standing on is holy ground. Take off your sandals. See, what's happening there is God's holiness is displayed in that bush, and you think either the bush has to go away or the holiness is diminished, and it's neither of those. And that's what Moses is perplexed by at the burning bush. But what is the effect of God's holiness taking over there? He turns everything around his holiness holy. And so we're the holy ones set apart for him. And it's a good thing because the Bible says without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And so he makes us his holy ones. We're this nation belonging to him and we're ambassadors of Jesus representing him in this world, ambassadors for Christ, 2 Corinthians 5 says. And then this beautiful description, we're his special possession. We belong to our king. That, that's who he's made us to be. We're his people, his own possession. We find him precious and he 
finds us precious, when he finds us in his son, we're his special possession. We belong to our king. We're not just citizens of this nation. We're not subjects of this kingdom only. We are children of this king. We are the bride of Christ. There's a preciousness. There's an intimacy. There's a personal dynamic to this. We're his people. We belong to him. And then it says, we're a people who've received mercy. We desperately needed God's kindness toward toward us in our misery and distress. And he happily, lavishly gives that to us. And so we're children of God. And as my friend Bobby Scott likes to say, we've been redeemed from every conceivable slave market of sin there is. We've been now crucified with Christ And as Paul says, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. This life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He loves us as his special possession, as his children, as his bride. You know, I will often take one of my kids with me when I travel and go places. And uh, I remember one time I took my daughter, Caroline. I think she was nine at the time. And I I can't even remember what city we were in, but we were staying in a hotel, and I got up really early in the morning, and I was going to go down to the lobby and get some work done. And, and, And I got up, and I looked at Caroline, and during the night, her blanket had fallen off and was on the floor. And this little girl, she's 22 now, and she still hasn't broken the five foot barrier. Uh, she's, she's a very small young lady, and, and when she was a little girl, she was really tiny, and she was a sound asleep, but, but she was cold, and I could tell, and she had curled up in a little ball just to try to get some of her body heat to warm her up, because her blanket had fallen off. And I remember before I left, I, I, I took her blanket, and I put it on her, and I, I took my blanket off of my bed, and I put it on her, and I tucked her in to preserve all the body heat that she was now going to put in that little cocoon I had put her in, and I put it right up to her neck, and, and I could tell, even though she didn't wake up, she, she was starting to feel that warmth, and then I just put my hand on her shoulder, and I prayed for her, and I was just praying. I had this thought the way I just loved Caroline is the way God tenderly attentively, compassionately cares for all his children. And a lot of times, like Caroline, we're not even aware of our needs. We're not even aware of how how much we need him to care for us. And he doesn't even wait for our awareness very often. He he doesn't even wait for us to cry out to him most of the time. He, He cares for us in such beautiful, tender, fatherly ways. That's who God is. That's how he cares for us. And he makes us his people. And we're precious to him. But I don't want you to miss where this then goes. Okay, that's who you are. We're precious. We're we're in Christ now. And we're a, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a people belonging to God. But then look where it goes in verse 9. That... Why are you this people? Not just so we become a people, but what? So we draw the attention to the one who made us his people. Not to ourselves, but to him. That, do you see it halfway through verse 9? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You see, there's not a final focus on who we are and who we've become. There's a focus on the way who made us a redeemed people, a special possession. He's the one who did that. And so the final attention doesn't go to ourselves, but it goes to the one who made us who we are. We deflect the glory. We deflect the attention to him. The the one who took us out of darkness into his marvelous light. You know, I teach at Biola University. We're almost... Not all, but many, the the vast majority of my students grew up in Christian families, Christian homes, went to Christian schools. And they don't remember a time very clearly when God said, this life you've been living in darkness, I'm taking you out of it. 
And so the preciousness of who God has made them, they can miss it. Both of these guys, Dom and Junior, are later in life converts. And there, there's a vividness for them. We were just talking about it yesterday, how God, God at, at a time in their life, when they had nothing lovely before God and, and nothing worthy before God and not a life that was impressive to God, but just the opposite. And God said, you're coming with me now. You're mine. Not because of you, but because of who I am. And he came and he, he brought them into his family, gave them hearts of flesh that could respond in faith and changed everything for them. It's so good to have people in your life who remember that day or those days when they've been pulled out of this darkness and began the process of helping us to show that we've been made holy by him. And we become a proclaiming people then so that we may proclaim these things. Our identity, our unity, who we've become is not just so we can enjoy who we are, but enjoy who God is and help others do the same in the proclamation of the gospel. We've got to be proclaimers. We've got to make sure people know who we are. You know, we, we love natural beauty in our family, and we've gone to great lengths to expose ourselves and our children to great beauty and to see the glory of God. But when I'm with them, I always try to say, look at Bridal Veil Falls, kids in Yosemite. Look at El Capitan. Look, look at the valley. And I always don't, I don't want to leave it there. And I want to say, how about the God who made those falls? How about the God who made that mountain? How about the God who made that lake that is as, as beautiful as anything in the, in the all creation? You see, it's got to be redirected to God. And the same thing is true with the, the good things God's doing through our lives. We've got to have this deflection instinct to glorify God, to proclaim his greatness to let people know who he is and what he's done for us. We've got to ask God to help us daily recapture awe and joy and delight and gratitude in who he is and what he has done to pull us out of darkness in the marvelous light. That's got to spill over. And again, not just helping people understand the logic and the reasonableness and truthfulness of the Christian faith, but the goodness of it, the delight of it, and the joy of being saved by an all-good God and has made us his precious possession. Do we have a photograph? This is a painting by Caravaggio, and it is an amazing painting. This is a painting Caravaggio created to capture the moment when the disciples who were on the road to Emmaus we're walking with the resurrected Christ and didn't realize it. But here in this moment, as they go to the inn, when Jesus takes the bread and he breaks it, maybe they remembered the Last Supper in that moment. Maybe they saw the enduring nail scars in his hands as he broke the bread. But most, most significantly, because the Spirit now said, okay. And he takes the blinders off and they see that the one they thought had left them hopeless, was resurrected from the dead. And he was sitting right before them. And you can see the two seated disciples on the edge of their seats, realizing that it's the risen Lord who's eating with them in that moment. And this, this epitomizes this, this posture of these two disciples who realized who Jesus is are the kind of response we should have even well into our late 90s. <laughs> Until we finally see him and the glory of Christ will be seen like we've never even seen it this side of eternity. But along the way, the people of God need to be the ones who are on the edge of our seats, standing on tiptoes, longing to see Jesus in his glory, and then let that be the center of our lives and the fuel of our lives. Now, Caravaggio very intentionally also put the innkeeper in this painting, the one standing. He's, uh, he's not quite as impressed. You know, he's kind of taking it all in. Not captured by the risen Messiah, but, you know, scrutinizing, evaluating, thinking about this. And, and we've got to realize that what we're called to, 
not, not a personality transplant or, or anything like that, but, but a love for Christ and an expectancy of his return that defines our lives. That's who we've got to be. My, my brother-in-law is an amazing evangelist. He's a pastor out in, um, in Columbia, Maryland, and, and he, he's very intentional about evangelism. And so he, he, um, he will go to the same cashier at the grocery store, even if her line's the longest, because he just wants to continue his conversation he's been having about, with her about Jesus. He had been having great conversations about the Lord with his barber, and he woke up one day thinking about him and burdened by him, and he did not need a haircut. But he went and got one anyway. And, and he came in, and he was the last customer. And he, he walked in, and his barber said, David, how you doing? And he said, you know, I'm doing great. And he said, why? He said, because of what I read in the Bible this morning. He said, what'd you read in the Bible? He said, I read this story in Matthew 16. And Jesus asked his disciples the most important question in all of life. He asked them, who do you say that I am? And this Peter guy, he gets it right. You know, Peter'd run his mouth. He'd, he'd be a bull in a china shop, but this time he knocked it out of the park. And he said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. You're the Messiah. You're the one we've been waiting for. You're the one we need, in other words. And David said, you know what I realized happened? When Peter finally figured out who Jesus was, that's when Jesus told him who he was. And he even gave him a new name. He said, that, that kind of faith will be what I build my church on, Peter. He said, heaven, flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you, Peter, but my, my father did. That came from heaven, Peter, that understanding. And then he gives Peter a, a destiny and an identity and even a name. And David said, and I realize everybody all over the world, they're, they're always trying to find themselves. And they always go to places like Maui to try to find themselves. Not New Jersey, Maui for some reason. I don't know. And David said, and I realize nobody's going to find themselves until they find Jesus. And his barber shut off the clippers and he put them down. And he said, I feel just like the guy Peter. I have no idea who I am. I'm in my 50s and I have no idea who I am. And, and David said, I don't think you're going to know until you know who Jesus is. Do you really want to know who he is? And he did. And he just laid out the gospel for 10 minutes. And then he said to his barber, do you want to trust Jesus now so you can find out who you, are, who you are and who you're meant to be? And he said, I do. And they knelt down on the hairy floor of the barber shop and his barber trusted Christ, became part of their church. You see, he wasn't satisfied to just know who he was. He wanted this man in his life to know who he was. And so he proclaimed that he had tasted and seen that the Lord was good in Christ. And now he knows who he is. I long for us as the people of God to know who God is and that he's good. And that his goodness is seen most clearly in Jesus. And we find our identity as a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a people belonging to God with our lives grounded on the cornerstone. And then we're able to know who we are with confidence and humility and proclaim his greatness from the rooftops. That's who we are. That's who God is, and that's what we're called to. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your greatness. Thank you for the beauty, the truthfulness, and the preciousness of Jesus. And I pray that you would help us to spend our lives glorying in Christ and who he's made us to be and pointing others to the one who pulled us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Lord, I pray for this church family. I pray that there would be a growing experience and understanding from your word and as the spirit works and who you are as our creator who's good and wise and powerful and wrathful, and just, and jealous, and truthful, and dependable. Lord, I pray that we would know your goodness, and know your goodness in who you've made us to be, and that this church family would increasingly be those who proclaim the greatness of the one who pulled them out of darkness and made us a holy people. 
pray your great blessing on this flock. I pray for great unity that Jesus prayed for, that our unity would even look like the unity among Father, Son, and Spirit that has existed for all of eternity as we're brought into relationship with you through our sonship with him. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the Spirit's ability to break down dividing hostilities between us as humans in relationship with humans. And Lord, I pray that we would be people who indeed live out our calling to be your people and declare the greatness of our Savior, Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.